This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. Last week I was at a conference and I heard Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative talk for over an hour. And his theme was that the root of social change, effective social change, begins by being proximate to those who are suffering, to those who need to be in community with those who are committed to changing the system. I couldn't and didn't want to share the whole hour, and the audio quality of this is not very good, I'm sorry to say, but I did put together three excerpts, three stories he tells that illustrate what it means to be proximate and how to not be burnt out when doing something as heavy as trying to transform the criminal justice system in the United States, where he points out that 70 million people have criminal records and are systematically discriminated against because of that. So here is Brian Stevenson. I went down to Atlanta and I met this community of lawyers providing legal services to people on death row, and these lawyers were deeply engaged by the work they were doing. They got up early in the morning, they worked hard all day, they stayed up late at night, and began to think differently about the kind of lawyer I might become. And I've been there a week when one of the lawyers said, Brian, we need you to go down to death row and just explain to someone that he's not at risk of execution any time in the next year. They said, we haven't had time to go meet him and we're worried he might be concerned. So you go down there and just explain that to him. So I said I would, and I got in my car the next day and I drove down to death row. I'd never been to death row before. I'd never been to a maximum security prison before. And I parked my car in the prison parking lot, and then it dawned on me that this man might be really disappointed when he realized that I'm just a law student. And finally, when they had one change, he came over to me, and I was so nervous that I'd forgotten things that rehearsed to say, and I just said, I'm so sorry. I said, I don't know much about the death penalty, I don't know much about appellate litigation, I don't know much about these other things, but they sent me down here to tell you that you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And as soon as I said that, the man said, wait, 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 say that again. And he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, you're the first person I've met in the two years that I've been on death row who's not a death row prisoner or death row guard. He said, I've been talking to my wife and my kids on the phone, but I haven't let them come and visit because I was afraid they'd show up uh, and I'd have an execution date. He said, now because of you, I'm going to see my wife, I'm going to see my kids. He said, thank you. Just being proximate could have an impact on the quality of someone's life. It was undeniable to me. That man and I started talking, it turned out we were exactly the same age. Same day, same month, same year. He started asking me questions about my life, I asked him questions about his life. Before I knew it, we were lost in conversation. I'd only scheduled to be there an hour. And an hour quickly turned into two hours, and two hours turned into three hours, and we were still talking. The guard were outside the door waiting for us to finish. And they were getting angry that I'd stayed past my allotted hour. And after three hours, they couldn't take it any longer. They came bursting into the room. They were, they were frustrated. They were mad. And they couldn't do anything to me, so they took it out uh, on this crime. And they threw him against the wall and pulled his arms back. And they put those handcuffs back on his wrist so tightly you could see the metal pinching his skin. They wrapped the chain around his waist. And I begged them to be gentle. I said, look, it's not his fault. It's my fault. I, I stayed longer than I should. He didn't do anything. This client turned to me and said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. 
And then they put the shackles on his ankles. I could see the metal pinching, and they started shoving him violently toward the door. They almost knocked him down. The guards were covered. They started pushing him down the hallway. You could hear the chains clanking, but you could hear this man singing without higher ground. And I heard that man sing, everything changed for me, because in that moment, I knew I wanted to help condemned people get to higher ground. But more than that, I knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to history. Ending the war on drugs, the challenge of ending mass incarceration is in some ways the second part of this problem. The first part of the problem is challenging, ending the politics of fear and anger. Because if we allow ourselves to be governed by fear and anger, we will accept things that are unacceptable. Go anywhere in the world where there's oppression. If you ask the oppressors why they do what they do, if you ask them why do you treat these people this way, they'll give you a narrative of fear and anger. So I think we actually have to change the narratives of fear and anger that we're being bombarded with. We're in a moment in our nation's history when there's a rise in the politics of fear and anger. People are actually advocating this position of anger and fear. And we're going to have to change that. I've seen what it's done to children. I work with kids in response to this epidemic that took place 20 years ago when we had criminologists going around the country arguing that some children are children. And every state in the country responded. Every state lower than minimum age were trying children as adults. We began putting 13 and 14 year old children in prison for life with no chance of parole. We, uh, 13 states eliminated the minimum age for trying children as adults. I've actually represented nine year old children facing 50 year prison sentences in adult jails and prisons. We did something horrific. It's when this pipeline was constructed from schoolhouses to jailhouses. We created this mindset that this generation of children just needed to be put in prison. We couldn't get them there fast enough, young enough. And we have to change that narrative. We have to get people to understand that all children are children. I worked on a case some years ago involving a 14-year-old boy who lived in a house where his mother would sometimes be the target of domestic violence. In too many communities, violence has become normalized. And this boy's mother had a boyfriend. When the man would start drinking, he would get violent. And one day, the man had been drinking, and he came home. And they walked into the kitchen, and they called the boy's mother into the kitchen. And he didn't say anything to this woman. He just asked her into the kitchen. And when she walked into the kitchen, the man walked up to her, and he punched her in the face. She fell, and she hit her head as she fell, and she was on the floor, bleeding and unconscious. And her son came running into the kitchen to help his mom. He tried to stop the bleeding. He tried to get her to wake up. He tried to get her to be responsive. But after 10 minutes, his mom was just lying there, bleeding. The little boy thought his mom was dead. She wasn't dead, but he thought she was dead. And so this little boy got up and he walked into the bedroom where the man had fallen asleep. The man had gone into a bedroom and fallen asleep. And so the little boy went in there. He was going to call the police. He was going to call the ambulance. But then he remembered that that man uh, kept a handgun in the dresser drawer. And so he went over to the dresser drawer and he pulled out the gun. And he walked over to where the man was sleeping and he pointed the gun at the man's head. The man was snoring. And at some point the man stopped snoring. When the man stopped snoring, the little boy panicked. And he pulled the trigger and shot the man in the head, killing him instantly. Tragic. This little boy was very small for his age. He was under five feet tall. He weighed less than 100 pounds. He had never been in trouble before. Uh, he uh, 
decent student. And he might have been tried as a juvenile, but for the fact that the man that he shot and killed his mother's boyfriend, well, that man was a deputy sheriff. And because he was a deputy sheriff, his prosecutor insisted that this child be tried as an adult, and the judge certified him to stand trial as an adult, and they immediately placed him in the adult jail. He'd been there three days before uh, I got a call from his grandmother to, 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 to work on the case, and I went to the jail to see this little boy, and I never will forget the little boy walking into the visitation room, sitting down, and he looked terrified. And I started asking him questions, but no matter what I asked him, the little boy wouldn't say anything, he just said. So I put my pen down and said, look, I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You've got to talk to me. The boy wouldn't say a word. He just sat there. I got up. I walked around the table. I pulled my chair close to him. I said, well, you've got to talk to me. I can't help you if you don't talk to me. The little boy was just sitting there. He was staring at the wall. He would not say a word. I couldn't figure out what to do. And at some point, I just leaned on him. I don't even know why, but I leaned on him. And when I leaned on him, he leaned back. And when he leaned back, I put my arm around him. And that's when this little boy started to cry. And through his tears, he began talking to me not about what happened with his mom, not about what happened with the man, but through his tears, he began talking to me about what had happened at the jail. He told me on the first night several men had hurt him. He told me on the next night he'd been sexually assaulted by several people. He told me on the night before I'd gotten there, so many people had hurt him, he couldn't remember how many there had been. And I held this little boy almost an hour. I finally got him calm. I said, look, I'm going to get you out of here. You stay right here, and I will never forget trying to leave that jail. And that little boy grabbing me by the arm, saying, please, please don't go. Please, please don't go. I said, no, it's OK. It's all right. I'm going to get you out of here. And when I left that jail, the question I had in my mind is, who is responsible for this? The answer is, we are. We've allowed this narrative to emerge that some children are children, and we've got to change the narrative, we do not show our commitment to children by how well we treat talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids. Our commitment to children has to be manifest in how we treat poor kids, traumatized kids. I think we've gotten too celebratory when we talk about the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, you know, it, it, it just it just sounds so triumphant and wonderful. I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and it's and it's starting to sound like a three-day carnival. On day one, Rosa Parks took the University on the bus. On day two, Dr. King went to march on Washington. On day three, we changed all the laws and racism was over. And it would be great if that was our history, but that is not our history. Our history is that for decades in this country, black people could not go to school because they were black. People were told they can't vote because they were black. My parents were humiliated every day of their lives by those signs that were white and color. They weren't directions. They were assaults. They created injuries. And we haven't treated those injuries. And that narrative of racial difference persisted after the Voting Rights Act and after the Civil Rights Act. And today, we're still living in a nation where that narrative of racial difference exists. And the great challenge we face right now is that in too many of our communities, it manifests itself. And you can be uh, a 
an executive, you could be a program director, you could be a program associate at a very well-respected foundation, you could be a lawyer, you could be educated, you can be kind, you can be a person of faith, but if you're a person of color, if you're black or brown, you will go places in this country where you're going to be presumed dangerous and guilty just because of your color. We've got to give props and we've got to change narratives, we've got to stay open, but the fourth and final thing that we have to do is I believe we cannot change the world unless we're willing to do things that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. There is no way we can actually make a change if we insist on only doing at the, the convenient and, and That's what keeps me engaged, it's what keeps me inspired, and I feel really blessed to have that memory. 